Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Bilal Zuberi, partner at Lux Capital. Lux Capital invests in people inventing the future. Some of their investments include Happiest Baby, Citizen, Carbon Health, and DuckDuckGo. Bilal also founded GEO2 Technologies and has an extensive technical and science background. What we explore on today's episode is how to invest at the intersection of deep tech and consumer, which we haven't really covered that much on the show. So this is quite a unique episode. Without further ado, here's Bilal. Bilal, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I am great and so glad to be here. I really appreciate you taking the time. So I know when we first chatted, one of your focuses is investing in deep tech. And I'll be honest, we haven't covered deep tech on this show very much. Even investors that are generalists say that they avoid investing in deep tech and biotech. And so I wanted to know what is deep tech and how you think about it and what makes it interesting to you? Deep technology to us is where the scientific and technological depth of the solution is fairly central and fairly important to the formation of the company. Meaning you can actually create businesses, and I often say VCs like to have businesses where they take one of the two types of risks. In deep technology companies, we often say that the market is fairly obvious, but it is unclear if the solution can be built because it requires real innovation on the science and engineering front. Finding cure for cancer, clearly there are patients who will really benefit and they'll pay for it and will find a way, but can we discover the cure for cancer? That starts to become very important. And that's where we tend to invest, where we say we're willing to take a risk on technology. We're willing to look far ahead and say, squint our eyes and say, you know, this amazing team of scientists, entrepreneurs, they can kind of make it happen. And what are the risks in making that happen? How can we provide resources that enable that to happen? And if that happens, then there's a very large market that they can go after and and win big. Kind of interesting, because we talk about a lot about the show about how the companies that might have the best products might not always win. And they might not be like the actual true winners. Is that because they typically are Competing might be the wrong word, but what makes the business innovative is the actual business model itself versus the, the technology. Regardless of what space we're in, people don't buy technology. People buy a product and people buy a solution. And the real innovation in, in startups that we consider to be deep tech startups is not so much that they somehow took science and turned it into you know something that is available to, for others and in a productized form, but it's also figuring out How do you enter the market and reach out to those customers and give them something in a form that they can consume and use, right? And the customer could be a business, customer could be a consumer, it doesn't matter. And which is why we often see in in deep tech companies, especially those that have been more successful, a mission-oriented scientist, founder, innovator, inventor partnering up with somebody who has the go-to-market chops, for lack of a better word, and they help convert this science fiction into science fact and then science fact into a business, right? And putting all that together isn't easy. It requires a lot of different things to go right 
and uh, which is why you see these are seen as hard companies to build. But if you can build that, you can build really long enduring businesses because you're effectively now giving a very large customer base what they're looking for in the format that they can consume. I, you know, instead of looking at even at cancer and all, you know things that are much more technically complex, we can even look at devices, hardware devices we use. Right? Think of Apple. Think of Apple's phone and, and laptops and and watches. There are other people who worked on similar types of ideas, but turning that into something that people can consume is really interesting and important. And I think that's the beauty of having the magical science and engineering to have touch interfaces so easily accessible that people with fat fingers can also write on a small keyboard on a watch. There's a lot of science that goes into this, right? Like this touch interface is, there's a lot of chemistry and material science and electronics going on at the back end. And at the same time, turning it into something that it becomes a product that uh, that you aspire to have in your life. And you know, if you look at even our portfolio, the companies that have been able to do that, and then there are also companies out there that have great engineering and great technology, but they just can't cross that threshold to the other side. That's really interesting also how you think about it just when you, I guess, if it is a the company or rather the real innovation is actually a technological innovation, not a business model um, innovation. How I presume at least one of the co-founders is fairly technical and it's linking that piece as well from a technical founder as well to someone that still needs to have go-to-market shops, as you said, or business skills. When you look at companies that um, are much more about the technological innovation, like that part is the actual interesting part to you. Do you shy away if there's no one on the team that maybe comes from a business background or is that maybe an opportunity to partner so you can find that person? I think it is hard to fake it till you make it in the world of pure science. (laughs) So I think, you know, one of the tasks we have and we're doing diligence is to understand if this is BS or if this is real. That does not mean that the founder definitely needs to be, you know, sort of the subject matter expert. Like sometimes you have founders that have deep intellectual curiosity about that topic. They've read enough about it to understand the science and understand the various paths that may be accessible in the realm of um, you know, physical sciences to solve a problem. And then they bring on a team that they assemble with the right kind of you know, components in it to build this technical solution that's available. But it is very important that we, none of us want to be investors in the next Theranos, right? The idea is very big. The problem set is definitely understood. But the problem was that, you know, the leadership that was sitting in top, frankly, just did not have the understanding. And they thought they could just fake it until something would come along and they'll make it. And to be honest, that created a lot of pain for a lot of people, not just financial pain. I mean, obviously, there was real lives that could have been at risk because of that. How then do you think about conducting due diligence? Is it harder when you do have uh, companies that you need to get very, very technical since really like your investment is within the actual technology itself and innovation and not really the, the business model? So there's at least three layers of diligence in technology side. And yes, it is a little bit harder. First layer of diligence is, you know, you have to be a prepared mind. Like if I have never read anything about nuclear fusion, it's hard for me to completely fill up to speed in a few days on nuclear fusion. Because you know what? If you find a 20-year-old paper, you'll think nuclear fusion is a bunch of vaporware. Doesn't, it's not real. It's not physically not possible. But if you're in 2022, a whole bunch of companies have been funded by very serious investors to bring nuclear fusion energy to, to the forefront. 
So one is having a prepared mind, so an intellectual curiosity about what is happening in the world of science, what is happening in the world of invention and innovation, to really have a grasp on, you know, these are the things that people are talking about. This is what's happening in climate change. This is people are dealing with new materials or new places where biology and chemistry and computer science is coming together or what's happening in the brain-computer interfaces. And so, so you have to have a natural curiosity that keeps you glued into where to look for information when it presents itself. The second level that happens is around the actual science diligence. So you have to have a network that you can call upon to do that diligence. That network could include, obviously, typically faculty members, professors, subject matter experts that you tap into. This is a network you, you can call upon and be like, hey, John, I'm looking at something really interesting in this new advanced material space. And this John may be a professor at Stanford or MIT or Harvard or Kansas State University in that space. And you say, you know, what are your thoughts on it? And he or she may be biased. That's okay. But you can have multiple data points you can get from real experts in the field to really understand where to spend time, what is the unknown. Because clearly not everything is figured out. There's always a bit of unknown, but you can, they can guide your eyes to where to pay attention. You know, is it a math that doesn't add up? Is it violating the second law of thermodynamics? Or is it something that, you know, hey, this could be very hard to do. These guys seem to think it's easy, but it's not. So let's figure it out. And then the third layer of diligence is looking at that team itself and understanding their capacity and capability and their understanding of what this roadmap will look like. Any company, I would argue, that becomes worth billions of dollars probably lives through three, four, five different lives, right? They have to pirouette or pivot a few times in their life to sort of grow into that big valuations and big business. In deep tech space, similar things happen. You know, sometimes you hit a wall and you just can't overcome it. You, you know, it may be a, you know, real a physical law that you can't obviously violate natural laws. But it could also be the capital required to overcome this brute force would be just too much. So you have to find some clever way to work around. And, and so you spend a lot of time also on the team to understand, do they understand what they're getting into? Do they have the tenacity to work through that? When they hit a wall and hit a snag, Will they first accept that this is the problem? Hence, they'll be honest and upfront that, hey, we have a problem we have to solve. Second, do they have the capacity to either solve it themselves or bring on resources and other people that can help them solve the problem? And then third, can they market that to the world the right way to help them understand that, hey, we said we were doing A, we're doing B, but B is an interesting intermediate path getting towards a solution to A. So you, we, we do this diligence. This is... Uh, diligence that requires you to be, to have a skeptical mind, right? Like it's not just rah, 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 let's just take a bet and see if it works. Because this is where VCs have to help founders also figure out that, you know, this is a risky path and let's make sure we, you know, one of the things you should be doing along the way of building a company is reducing the risk in the business. So let's systematically figure out over the next few stages of this business how we reduce these technical risks and how do we create alternatives that in case we run into a wall, there are other ways of solving that problem as a business. I appreciate you explaining like the multiple layers about how you think about diligence. Since you say that you need to have a prepared mind to really understand maybe some of the large categories that are out there or really kind of understanding of, of what other companies are working on, do you think of yourself fairly thematic when it comes to investing in deep companies or is it much more maybe like opportunistic and kind of have like the founder lead per se and then you go back and you think about the category itself? Really interesting. The honest answer is that all of us who do deep tech investing are a little bit of both. Right? Um, I am thematically so tuned into the water problem for 15 years, all the years that I've spent in venture capital. But I've yet to find a single investment and an in, in a founder that I can feel like I can bet the farm on this person. The way to think about these, these industries is, you know, and I'm 
writing something on this I should publish soon is you want to bet on teams that want to own the problem, not just the solution. What I mean by that is two things. One, any particular solution may run into a wall because there's this scientific invention and then translation into an innovation and a product and then commercialization. There's a lot of unknowns and a lot of risk involved. So you want to have a team that can move past. It's not a one-trick pony that, you know, just this one molecule. And if this molecule doesn't go through, then kaput, I'm, I'm at the end of the road. Those are not enduring business. That's not a good venture capital investment usually. So you want people who own the problem and have multiple shots at goal and trying to figure that out. And in different disciplines, it forms different, you know, takes different meaning and different ways of approaching it. So, so that's one thing. And then the second thing is that you want teams that are mission-driven and not a mercenary. This idea of a serial entrepreneur, we don't often see in deep tech. They may become serial entrepreneurs because they've had two, three companies, but that's not a goal in itself. Right? These guys are like, I want to solve cancer. Like, what other thing I could be doing for the rest of my life than solving this problem? Right? Or Moderna, or choose your own adventure. But the idea is that these guys are really mission driven. They're building enduring companies. They want to do this for the rest of their life if they're successful. So, you have to find people who have that kind of a mentality around this. As I said before, there is no lack of problems in this world to be solved. Deep technology problems are usually addressing a problem that is so obvious. You know, we want to go to Mars. Yeah, it's a fucking obvious problem, right? Like, yeah, it would be nice to be able to go travel easily to another planet. Or we want to solve climate change. Oh, that's very obvious. That'd be very nice to solve that problem. We want a cure for a particular disease, right? That'd be great. We want autonomous cars so that we don't have to drive and get into accidents. These are all obvious problems. So unlike other places where like, you know, will do people really want to date each other in the middle of the afternoon within a 15 minute break? Those are like unknown problems. They're not obvious problems. These are deep tech companies usually have very obvious problems that they're solving. It's often how do you solve that problem and then how do you commercialize that? So that's where people spend a lot of their time and energy. And we look for founders that give us an insight into those problems that we've never had before. Just telling us that this is a problem is not good enough because we know it already. In the first 30 seconds, and I'm like, yeah, oh, I guess that's a problem. That's great. The rest of the hour goes into what do you know that gives you an edge over everybody else? Do you have a technological edge? Do you have a, a you know an understanding of a customer mindset that nobody else has had? Like if you were building climate models and you wanted to sell it as a model to somebody and nobody was buying it, have you gotten an insight that, hey, maybe people will buy insurance that's built on top of those climate models? And that's the product you sell, not the model itself, but the insurance that's built on top of a climate model. So that's what we look for in these conversations because founders and entrepreneurs are just frankly smarter than VCs. They are able to find insights into businesses and into markets that VCs often don't. And when we find those that's when we go hard after it. Like, you know, oh my God, interesting problem, interesting insight, this team is special, let's go. How do you think as an investor, when it comes to return timelines, investment, because I'd imagine that even like deploying capital and maybe like the amount of the, uh, capital deployed and just what do you think about ROI, I'd imagine it's, it's a little bit of a different beast than like your um, stereotypical investment. It is, and there are two ways of thinking about this. One is that we are patient capital, even though structured as a 10-year fund, and all of us, most of us are structured as 10-year funds. You can imagine there's a lot of this idea of every 18 months, three to five X increase in valuation, raise more capital, and somebody else is coming in to price you up, and all of that stuff, right? And there's a traditional cadence of that. 
in deep tech, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit more of a, you start building your syndicate from the beginning and a coalition that believes in that. You, you, you may not get those rapid accelerations, you know, in customer adoption or even customer validation. And you certainly may not get that very high rapid increase in valuation besides, you know, some hype markets that come and go. So certainly you have to take a longer term perspective. So when we think about our investment, we think about not only what we're investing now, but at the time of an initial investment, and we're typically Series A investors, we think about what does this company need along the way? So, you know, unlike other companies, Series B and C discussions happen way earlier in our own minds and in our own internal decision making, that what could that look like? What could that capitalization need like? And, and part of evaluating a team is their ability to unlock that capital. Can this team, if you're building out a nuclear power company, you need to be able to raise a lot of capital because it just takes a lot of money and a lot of time, the regulatory hurdle. So are you a team that is capable of doing that? Right? That becomes a part of your, the venture capital diligence, that this is a team that is capable of unlocking that kind of capital at lower cost of capital. This is also where, frankly, VCs, when they've done a lot more deep tech work, they build relationships and unlock resources that can be additive to this whole flow. You know, if you're selling into the government and military, there's no fast way of selling into the military. But we can find ways to finance this off balance sheets, off uh, strategics, off nonprofit grants and foundation, SBR money, all kinds of other resources that we can bring to bear and say, hey, have you considered this and this and this other path to essentially relieve some of the financial burden that will it will take a while to do that. The third thing is, you know, and, and this is something that doesn't get discussed enough in, in venture capital is, you know, we all hear a lot about this company went public, Sequoia held on to the stock, and 10 years later, it was like a 100x what it was when it went public. Well, the same thing happens in deep tech too, right? Like if you held stock at Moderna, uh, I mean, you couldn't anticipate this black swan event that, that happened over the last two years. But my God, if you imagine if you sold all your stock in February of 2020 versus holding on to it, if you were a Tesla shareholder, if Tesla oscillated between two and four billion in valuation for basically all of its life, right? If you look at the chart of Tesla stock and now it's like, you know, the company's worth whatever, 600, 900 billion dollars, right? So now in some ways, it'd be really nice if I didn't have to wait 14 years and I just know when it's about to pop and I'll just go buy then. But that's not the business we're in. We're, we're in the business of saying these are important companies. These are companies that need to exist. And if they do exist, then they will actually have enduring long term you know, tremendous value. You just have to wait long enough to do that. In the case of Tesla, the company started in 2004. The real acceleration started happening, what, three, four years ago? So 14 years past the timeline of any traditional venture financing, you know, people were holding on to their stock. And, you know, Ira, Aaron Price and a few others, and Steve Jervis, and they held on to their stock for a very long time. And then they saw their, you know, now they're all billionaires or whatever, right? I think this is important to understand. And, and this is important to, you know, when we spend time with our companies, it's not a bet. We are working in trenches with these guys to really understand that through the ups and downs, you know, through the fact that, you know, they don't have revenues, they're doing technical milestones. Is this technical milestone a real value generating one or not. So it's a much closer relationship between, in my opinion, between deep tech investors and deep tech founders than you find in probably even in traditional tech. And, and that's needed to continue to have the, the confidence that this team is creating value that will accrue in the long term. I know you're a generalist. You look at companies that are selling to many different customer sets. How do you think about consumer deep tech companies? What are some of the opportunities that you're currently exploring? So we consume, as consumers, we consume deep tech all the time. We just don't call it that, right? 
like I have a whole bunch of screens in front of me. There's a lot of deep technology that went into it, right? From electronics and engineering to material science to so on, right? Like it's there's a lot of deep tech. I just took it for granted that somebody at Apple and whoever built this and it'll work. I'm having coffee while I'm talking to you in a cup that's digitally heated. It's a heated cup that keeps my coffee at a certain temperature for much longer. So I can have this entire hour-long conversation with you and continue to enjoy coffee at 140 degrees. This required a lot of innovation in material science, a lot of innovation in battery science and consumerization, and then a UI that, to me, it's just a cup. Right? Like it's not some, I'm not doing complex computer science to be, I just use cup as a coffee cup, but it does amazing things for me. Consumer products can have a tremendous amount of technology embedded inside, but also importantly, that could be a sustainable differentiating advantage for them. And we have invested in several companies that do that. Not every com- consumer company needs to do that, but there's a lot of companies that do that. And we, we're seeing more and more of that because we are expecting more and more out of our cons- consumer devices. You know, every device we expect it to be somehow connected, right? Like it's, it's, it's no longer, you know, the idea of IoT and connected devices. Well, everything is kind of connected at this point. So it, it's, you know, okay, if it's connected, then what is it doing for me? And how, how is it actually functioning? And how is it making it happen? For example, computer vision, right? So if you're doing computer vision and you have machine learning AI algorithms for facial recognition and whatever, well, you need to have great cameras, but we're also trying to shrink the phones down. So how do you do that? Right? We want 5G connectivity so we can have really fast, blazing fast connectivity. Well, you do that. You know what? On an iPhone, it has a stainless steel at the back. Well, suddenly your antennas are not that exposed. If you take that stainless steel backing out because you want antennas to be exposed for 5G connectivity, how do you make this case, which is just on the outside, strong enough that it doesn't break when you sit on it because it's in your back pocket? Right? That requires material science innovation. That requires manufacturing innovation. Right? If you make that case... As an example, out of a solid block of stainless steel, you throw away 95% of the material. Huge waste. But if you can figure out how to do stainless steel 3D printing, you're saving on all those materials. It's a direct cost advantage, right? So a consumer device could have tremendous deep tech innovation. As one example I'll give you is Evolve technology. So if you go into stadium, basically around the country now, if you go to Super Bowl, you'll see it. If you go other places, you walk through security systems. Evolve is building these security systems. You no longer have to stand in line for an hour before a basketball game so that this guy with a wand is going around you and in your bag and all that. And it's a security threat, right? Like I don't have to, you know, um, I don't have to disrupt with a security threat inside the stadium. I can just do it outside, right? So... How do you change that so that people can walk right through? Well, the solution is a consumer benefit. You're not standing in line. You're not having to divest everything. Old ladies are not taking off their necklaces before going through a metal detector and a person with the heart monitor or something. You know, it's, it's a consumer benefit. But to do that, you have to create new kinds of sensors using metamaterial technologies, millimeter wave detection technologies, and so on, so that you can actually get it done in real time. And that's amazing benefits that accrue to people. You know, we have a company called, this is a company called Evolve that does this security screening. We have a company called, for example, Happiest Baby. Happiest Baby makes this beautiful crib for babies to go to sleep in. Now, you may buy it just because it's beautiful. But the magic of it is that it uses lessons learned of 25 years of research around these 5S techniques that Dr. Harvey Karp came up with and basically turned it into a robot. So that this mechanical electrical crib actually puts your baby to sleep within 30 seconds. You know, it adds another hour or more to the sleep of the baby, which is a huge boost 
to, you know, the, obviously the parents' mental sanity, all of us who've had kids can attest to that. But also you can think about it, you know, there's this SIDS-related deaths, right? Babies forget to sleep, uh, forget to breathe in their sleep and die, right? This can detect that the baby is not breathing and literally the same movements that it did to put the sleep baby to sleep can do that to wake the baby up so the baby can start breathing again and have 94% accuracy in improving the, you know, or improving upon the SIDS death. And then it has, you know, postpartum depression and managing that or helping with that and all of that. So there's a lot of benefits that accrue. So we, we do a lot of thinking around, you know, these are real problems in the world. As I said, all of these are, you know, not genius problems. Somebody may have just identified it, but once identified, it's so obvious that this is a problem. But then deeply technological solutions allow you to not only solve the problems in a better way, but also build a defensive moat around that business so that not everybody else can come in and start doing the same thing, essentially leading to the commoditization. And that allows us to build, you know, what we consider to be long enduring businesses that are multi-generational businesses, standalone businesses. Those are fantastic examples. And what I love about this conversation is that I feel like when you think about deep tech, it's kind of overwhelming a bit. And how you're explaining it, especially in the consumer landscape, there's so many um, applications that really took a lot of complex technology in order to actually produce. Love your happiest baby example, too, because that has been a life changer for us. How do you also think about competitive advantage and maybe one that sounds good to say. I would imagine when a deep cap company comes to you and present you the problem, as you've said, the problem typically is obvious, right? Now the question is, how do you examine and think about if this company were to succeed, they would actually have a competitive advantage here versus one that maybe just like sounds good to say and maybe it's just not actually very real? At the most fundamental level, we actually bluntly ask, you know, what do you know or what will we know as investors that nobody else knows that gives us an advantage over everybody else, right? It could be a fundamental law of physics that can be exploited that nobody has done so before. It could be a medically relevant trait that nobody has examined before, right? You know, we all knew that when we, you know, we all sit in a car and we go to sleep, right? I mean, it's like, you know, but how do you systematically do that for a baby the age of zero to six months old? What are the right motions that are safe? What are the right mechanisms to do that? How do you detect and how do you, you know, how do you detect a baby crying inside the crib versus the brother of that baby that's crying outside the crib, right? Like there's triangulation of many different technologies. When you do that, you realize that, hey, it's a set of algorithms essentially. And that's protectable because it's, it's you know, we have figured out X, Y, Z work together to make this happen. So it's something that only we know. Sometimes it's patentable, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's, you know, based on, you know, physical advances like a new kind of a material or a new kind of a battery material or something that enables that. And sometimes it's more of a series of technologies working together in cohesion to create a solution that, that works a certain way. So we often say, you know, uh, let's assume that you're successful. Let's assume you're able to build this. Why would this be valuable years from that point on? Because the amount of capital that a VC can give you, I mean, there's a lot of VCs who can give you that money. There's a lot of corporations that have more money than most VCs, right? So it's not about capital. There's also a lot of smart people, right? It's not just, you know, we're like the five smartest people. I mean, you know, I'm sure you're very smart, but there's a lot of smart people in this world. But you clearly have identified something that's very unique and special. Let's talk about that. Maybe it's something that we can make public and defend it publicly like a patent or something like that. Or maybe we keep it to ourselves. But we should have that, that this is something that's really special to us. And we, we especially pay attention to that 
when founders are able to see that as not only something that's defensible in the short term, where they try to tell us, oh, I have a two years leg up over everybody else. Well, okay, well, so what does this look like in two years? If somebody catches up with you in three years, everybody's equal, four years, everybody's equal. We like to think of it as, you know, this is the kind of innovation that we're doing now that we will keep doubling down on. So if we are two years ahead of our competition, in two years, we'll be three years ahead of our competition or four years ahead of our competition. That's the kind of company that becomes really, really interesting. And that requires a constant innovation mindset. It's not a, I got this idea in my sleep, so I'm going to go raise some capital, build some company, and hopefully I can exit it to somebody before somebody else figures this out. That's not a, I mean, that's not a venture investment for us. We're looking for people that have long-term durable advantages over competition. These markets are complex. These markets are sometimes regulatory constrained. These markets have complex selling mechanisms. That All of that, if you figure, crack that, if you figure that out, you've created a moat for yourself that you will then exploit for a long time to come. I think I talked about this a little bit earlier. Sometimes the best products don't always win. And so how do you analyze as well, especially in some of these deep tech companies where it seems like since the technology is so hard to create, like thinking about like Happiest Baby, like such a tough technology to create that there is such a product innovation that probably they have a much better chance than, than competitors to succeed because the company is based off a technological innovation. But how do you also analyze like the marketing and branding of a company and making sure that, you know, these entrepreneurs that you're investing kind of have someone responsible for, you know, the market positioning and like what have you in that aspect of the business? I think the biggest place where VCs can help deep tech founders is, once they've invested, is in helping create a narrative and the storytelling expertise of that company. As you said, not only the best technologies don't win, but as I said, consumers and customers in general don't buy technology. They buy solutions. They buy uh, solutions that are applicable to them today, but they also buy into a vision that this particular provider is somebody I will bet on because they will continue to keep me ahead of the curve on on, on every angle, right? And uh, and that storytelling expertise is not uh, naturally occurring in many founders. The best founders have them. This is really important for many reasons. It's not just about customers. You have to, as a, as, a, as, a, as a person who's just starting a business, first you have to convince your founders and co-founders. You have a vision that this is how it should be solved. You've invented something or you have an idea. Well, you have to convince others to join you when there's nothing. You know, I just have an idea on a scratch of paper. You have to convince investors to give you money. You have to convince other employees to join you. Right? Now, if you were Tony Fadell and you left Apple to do this, maybe it's easier. But, uh, you know, even then it's not easy, but still maybe a little bit easier. But if you're a young person who's building this straight out of your grad school or something, that's non-trivial. So having the ability to tell that story is, is really important. And then obviously down the road to press and media and customers and, 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 and so on. The thing we look for in that, look, obviously we bring a lot of support and expertise in helping these guys. But the most important thing we look for is do they even care about that? Do they care? that they have to be good storytellers. I mean, obviously having a natural knack for it really helps, but you'd be surprised how often people don't really care about that. People think that they have invented the solution and I don't understand why nobody's buying my product, right? You know, this is the best solution. It gets, it generates frustration inside them that nobody is seeing what they're seeing. But I think the great founders and the great entrepreneurs, they take that frustration and turn it into their strength. And they basically say, you know, I know that I have solved a very interesting problem. 
I'm going to try to convince you now that this is the right solution to the problem and I'm going to make you a convert to me. It's like the difference between a prophet and not being a prophet. And these guys are, you know, sort of a prophet. Hopefully they don't take that title too seriously. But but they have to evangelize. They have to be spokespeople for those industries. Think about industries we talk about that that are getting transformed every day. Think about autonomous cars. You have to be an evangelist for autonomous cars. Elon Musk in his early days had to be an evangelist for electric cars. I mean, you know, nowadays President Biden talks about GM and electric cars. I mean, GM is the company that killed the electric car, right? We saw movies about it, the company that killed the electric car, right? And Tesla had to survive through that and say electric car is the future. There were not a lot of believers in that, right? We don't have enough electricity. We're going to be coal pumping power plants to power electric cars. What the hell are you talking about? Combustion engine is so much more cleaner than a coal power plant. All of that stuff. They had to live through that and Elon had to be the evangelist for that. The same thing can be said now for autonomous car systems. A lot of people, oh, one accident and people will die. Like, do you know how many people die in accidents every day because human beings can't get their shit together? Right? You have to be an evangelist for autonomous cars and work through these, you know, somewhat unclear days to come out on the other side. Think about, you know, Moderna, you know, for the longest time. Moderna was a public company. You and I could buy and sell shares in it, but they didn't have a product. Like, what good is this thing for? Like, you know, I, I get the science and all that, but there's nothing that it does, a public company that has no product. And then it comes out with a product. And now it's like, you know, oh, my God, they may have saved hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives around the world. Right? So I think being an evangelist for technology is a really important role that founders have to pay, especially in deep technology spaces where most people, for good reasons, will not understand the complexity and the sophistication of the problem and or the solution. So you have to kind of take them through a journey to understand what it is now and what it can be. You have to paint them a vision of what it can be for your own company to get there. Think about all the companies that are getting funded now. 3D printing. It's not just about printing tchotchkes, right? It is about saving 90 plus percent of material every time you make a part. You know, you are saving 95% plus of materials. That's huge, right? It's helping people understand that you don't have to. I, I just got door handles for my house. I got two extra door handles. Why? Oh, well, I don't know if, if one breaks, you know, I don't know if this door handle will be available 10 years from now. This is stupid in some ways, right? Like we should be able to just print these handles on spot, any design, anything you want. So you have to guide people through this idea. And once you get there, then you start seeing first the early converts and then everybody else that, hey, I can, I can buy this. And this storytelling exercise is something that most founders don't learn fast enough because in academic disciplines and stuff, that's not a core curriculum, right? Like it's not taught and which is unfortunate, which is why climate change, I've, I was a climate change scientist 25 years ago, right? I did my PhD in the field. Until today, we don't have great spokespeople for the climate. You know, we, we're still struggling to find that. We have to find a young girl from the Nordic countries to become a spokesperson for us because all the PhDs get lost in, you know, well, there's like 2% error and then they get lost in the 2%. Is it 2% error or 1.5% error or 2.5% error? They get lost in that nuance. And I'm sure it's an important scientific debate, but it doesn't fucking matter because guess what? Climate is changing whether it's a 1% error or 2% error. And that storytelling exercise is just not taught and it's just not seen important enough and, and, and hence the world suffers. So when founders are able to get that magical sauce on top of their companies, amazing things happen. What's one thing that you would change when it comes to venture capital? You know, the one thing I would change about venture capital, especially venture capital as practice in the last 10 years or so since the last recession, is that 
people have started to see this almost like a betting game, right? Like you just placing bets or a pseudo public market, you know, buying some shares into a company and see if it works out. I wish people would spend a little bit more time digging into these businesses and figuring out how they can be helpful partners to these businesses. When investors end up, and you know, different ways of portfolio construction, but when you have a small fund, but a hundred portfolio companies, you're just playing a game of odds. You're just basically saying, hey, either you're like, you know, this person is really smart because I had a conversation with him and he sounded wicked smart, or other smart people are investing in him, so there must be something amazing about this woman. Um, you know, okay, that's fine and dandy, but that's a point in time at the inception of the company. But throughout the company, the company's needs change and requirements change, and they can use your help. So I wish venture capital adjusted itself to see itself less of just financial investors, uh, but more of partners in helping build these companies. And in, interestingly, you will see certain top VCs are starting to use terminology that says that. You know, I know, you know, Khosla has tried to do that. I was just reading yesterday, Olaf Botha, an article about Olaf Botha, where he sees like that. You know, I'm not, I don't see myself as an investor. I see as a partner in company building. I know we talk about it that way. You see a lot of VC firms talk about how they incubate businesses and co-found businesses. Like Snowflake was incubated, uh, you know. It, all this is happening because people realize that it, not only the greatest joy comes from doing that in venture capital, but also some of the greatest successes come by doing that. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Well, professionally, I have to say this is a new, relatively new book, maybe a couple of years old, but I refer to it again and again. It's the High Growth Handbook by Elad Gill, right? And it's written from a, what we, in the lingo of the industry, we call it from an operator's perspective, right? So if you have a company that's growing and growing fast, which hopefully all of us have at least some companies in our portfolio that are showing that, how do you manage those companies? How do you build? You know, how do you think about, there's a lot going on. They're hiring 100 people a year, sometimes more than 100 people per year. How do you manage that? How do you manage culture? How do you think about finance and growth of that? How do you think about uh, product development and product roadmap? How do you think about OKRs and equivalent, whatever you want to call them, milestones? So, you know, managing these fast growth businesses is, uh, is a science. The last book that I read in that was, you know, uh, back from Intel days, like uh, of uh, how do you manage companies and, you know, the management practices back then. But now Elad talks about it in the context of today's companies where they go from zero to a billion dollars in valuation in less than five years. Operating these companies, its own beast. And I think VCs who are engaged with these companies and giving advice to these companies should also understand how these companies behave. There's very few people. One of the things you will hear in VC, in, in, in startup circles now, is a lot of VCs were entrepreneurs before. They built a company and they sold it for a few hundred million dollars, maybe a billion dollars, right? And then they got hired by a VC firm to become a partner there. But now, when you're on the board of a company that is worth $10 billion or $30 billion or $100 billion or $600 billion, right? There are very few, a handful of people in Silicon Valley that even know remotely what it means to be a $30 billion business, right? How do you provide advice to them? Do you, you come in, you know, when I was doing my startup that had 72 employees, this is what we, and the guy's like, I have 72,000 employees in 75 countries. Like, I don't give a shit about your 72 employee business, right? So this is also where VCs have to figure out how do I provide advice to these companies that are frankly past my knowledge, <laughs> Right? I think there's there's an interesting case one can make for actually board partners in that, right? Like, hey, you've grown past my behavior. Let me bring on the CEO, former CEO of 
DoorDash. Right? I mean, there's no former CEO there. But like, let me bring on some senior executive from a company that saw scale and bring it to your board because they can better relate in, to your problems than I can. So, so there's absolutely, you know, that happening. On the personal level, by the way, there's, there's a book that I'm reading. It's the Engineering uh, Marvels of the World. It's, it's, a, you know, it's a thick book, but it's, it's amazing that we take it for granted. And I've traveled around the world and you look at the pyramids of Giza or you look at the Great Wall of China or you look at the castles of Germany or France or England or you look at, you know, American ra- uh, railroad infrastructure. Um, these were incredible scale projects and they got done fast. Think of the Manhattan Project, landing on the moon, right? Um, there is so much to be learned about from the history of how these projects came about, about and how they were executed on. And, you know, they were game-changing. They were game-changing and remain impressive to this day, hundreds of years, in some cases, thousands of years down the road. And today, I always ask myself, what are we creating today that, you know, a few hundred years down the road, a few thousand years down the road, people will look at and say, oh my God, this generation built this, you know, and, and, and I think there are certain areas, you know, climate is going to be big, uh, you know, life sciences, healthcare is going to be big, you know, automation and autonomy is going to be big, we're going to completely change how human beings have, you know, have dealt with life that 200 years down the road, people look at it and say, yeah, that generation, man, they changed everything. We no longer had to stand on top of bulls and plow the, the, the farms to be able to get some, you know, food out. You know, it's all grown in hyperponic, whatever, you know, facilities on top of our rooftops. And we just go and grab a tomato. Uh, and this generation did that. Or, you know, they created a way to solve climate change. We don't have to deal with it. You know, no, we no longer consume any fossil fuels. You know, it's just all renewable energy. I think, you know, reading that is personally very inspiring because those people were solving big problems that seemed very big to their generation and they were able to do it. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Um, and also, I mean, you're very original. Um, neither of these books have been mentioned by others. So really excited to add them to Brooklyn and definitely um, going to check them out. Engineering uh Marvels of the World sounds fascinating, so that's amazing. My final question to you is, what's the best piece of advice that you've received? Well, the best piece of advice I received, to be honest, I'll make it very personal, was when I had the first kid born, I was told that my first, my job is to take care, after, take care of the mom. Mom can take care of the baby because the baby needs food, needs to be warm, and needs to sleep uh, and be clean. Uh, and I think that's really important. You know, we, you know, people talk about the fertility crisis and so on. And, you know, uh, I think the important thing is we need to make sure that we realize that we are also a society. We need to support each other. We need to create the opportunity for each other to be able to uh, participate fully in the professional world while also having a personal life. Um, so, you know, when I was in college, they were, you know, oh, I'm, you know, a lot of my friends used to, especially women were like, you know, I, I need, I'm a professional. I don't know when I'll have kids and all that. Well, that should not be a constraint today. We need to find ways around it. So my, some people who gave me this advice, and I distinctly remember who did that, uh, changed my life because, you know, my wife was able to recover faster, be happier during that time because she had my undivided attention and, uh, so it was it was really positive. And these days, by the way, I give it to I give the same advice to other people, and most people are very receptive. They're like, "Oh, never told me that. That's interesting." Bilal, this has been so much fun. Thanks so much for uh, coming on the show and and for chatting with me. It was great chatting with you, man. Thank you so much. I've listened to a lot of your shows, and uh, I I just love the conversations because they're so naturally flowing. It's not there's no agenda. It's just you know, let's talk about what we've learned having done this for many many years. 
And there you have it. I hope you all enjoyed. I highly recommend following Bilal on Twitter at BZNotes. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.